0: Friends, this is Daily Power Parsha. Today is Friday, May 13th. Oh, look at that. Friday the 13th. Bam, bam, bam. Look at that. Who knew it was Friday the 13th? Who's paying attention to that? Um, Okay, Friday the 13th. But to neutralize the faux effects, the not true effects of Friday the 13th, we are going to study Torah. And at Daily Power Parsha, we study the daily Torah reading. So today is Friday, so the, the sixth day of the week. So we're going to study the sixth reading. Tomorrow, we're not going to get together at DBP, so we're going to study the seventh reading. And maybe half Torah. we'll see how far and how quickly we get. Torah portion again, this week, it's been the whole week, right, is MR, And we are going to jump into the conversation, which takes us back to the holidays. We Last time we met, we did a little bit of a reverse order. But what we covered in totality was Passover, the bringing of the Omer offering on the second day of Passover, the counting of the Omer for 49 days, the holiday that emerges on day number 50, which we know today as Shavuot, which literally means weeks, because it's the festival of counting the weeks. You count seven weeks, 49 days. Next day is, or that next night is a holiday. Then we talked about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So now we're up to the final holiday, the final biblical holiday, which is Sukkot. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33, we begin. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month is the festival of Sukkot. Fifteenth day of the seventh month, which is Tishrei, that is the festival of Sukkot. A seven-day period to the Lord. It's a seven-day holiday. In the diaspora, we have a little bit more, but in, in Israel, and, and originally, it's a seven-day holiday. On the first day, it's a holy occasion. You shall, perform, you shall not perform any work of labor. This you find with the seven-day holidays, where day one and day seven are holidays, but in the middle, it's, uh, it's also part of the holiday, but it's not as... Uh, sanctified as the, other, as, the, as the bookends and you are permitted to do work in at in, uh, some level of work in the intermediate days. But on day one, the Torah says, it's a holy occasion. You shall not perform any work of labor. For a seven-day period, you shall bring a fire offering to the Lord. And on the eighth day, we said it's a seven-day holiday. Well, apparently there's an eighth day. On the eighth day, it shall be a holy occasion for you. And you shall bring a fire offering to the Lord. It is a day of detention. Now, that doesn't sound good. Detention in school is always a punishment, but I'm going to explain it in a moment. Is it is it, it is a day of detention? You shall not perform any work of labor. What that means is Shmini Atseres. It's the eighth day. That is a day of detention, or maybe a better word is retention, or keeping one close to oneself. God says, "We had a beautiful holiday season together." Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. Can you change your flight? You ever have you ever have that conversation with a relative visiting? Can you change your flight? Can you push off your flight one more day? God says, "Give me one more day, one more day of detention. Let me hold you. Ba- Let me hold you back for one more day. Don't go back to to work. Don't go back to real life. Spend one more day in uh, spiritual connection in in." bonding and connecting and, and, and enjoying each other's company, spend the day with me, change your flight. And that's what Shemini Atzeret is, the last day of the holiday. Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah, that is what it's about. It's about a, a, an extra day for God. Listen, it happens, right? Family visits, and you're like, oh, you can't stay one more day? I got a flight. You can't push off the flight? Okay, it's not. God did it first. God did it first. It's in the Torah. the day of detention. Day of, we'll see Rashi. It's a day of holding us back so we don't leave too quickly. Um, and it's born of love, obviously. These are, now the Torah kind of wraps up the holidays. These are God's appointed holy days that you shall designate them as holy occasions. On which to offer up a fire offering to the Lord, burnt offering, a meal offering, sacrifice and libations, the require the requirement of each day on its day. These are the holidays. These are the appointed days, special days, and on each of these days, you need to bring the right offerings, the right sacrifices, depending on the holiday. It's the the whole formula is different. And this is apart thirty eight, apart from the Lord's Sabbaths. These are special days with special sacrifices, aside from Shabbat, and apart and aside from your gifts, and apart or aside from all your vows and apart from all your donations that you give to the Lord. These are going to be holy uh, festivals or, or holidays in which you bring additional offerings outside of what you would bring on Shabbos, what you would promise or vow, what you would donate, etc. This is a separate conversation. But now we're back to Sukkot. You saw that? We talked about Sukkot for a few verses, Right? Then we kind of said, all right, these are the holidays. We wrapped it up, and then we're back to Sukkot. We go back to a very um, a deep dive into the final holiday. But on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you gather in the produce of the land, that's what happens in, on and around Sukkot. It's the time of the gathering of the harvest. I'll explain that in a moment. So when you gather the produce of the land, you shall, you shall celebrate the festival of the Lord for a seven-day seven period. The first day shall be a rest day and the eighth day shall be a rest day. I, I think I misspoke. I said one and seven. That's for Passover. Sukkot is one and eight. First day and eighth day are the special days that you don't do work on. And you shall take for yourself... Hold on. I may have wanted to say something here. Oh, yeah. Let me explain what it means to gather in the produce... On and around, like around the time of the holiday of Sukkot. In ancient Israel, here's how it worked. Maybe even Israel today, I don't know. You have to consult with the, um, the local farmers. But basically, if you were growing wheat, what you want is for the wheat to dry out in the field. So the first thing you have to do is you have to cut it when it becomes ripe. So when the wheat stalks and the wheat kernels, when those are ready, those are ready... You take your scythe and your sickle, whatever it is, you take your equipment and you cut down the stalks of wheat. However, you may not want to pull them into the, into the house or into the silo or whatever it is, into the granary or to the mill yet. Why? Because cut wheat could use a little drying out in the field. When you leave it out in the field in the hot you know, Israel sun, It really gets, it bakes, right? Not, I don't mean like bread bake, but it it bakes in the sun. And thus it becomes, the kernels become very dry, which makes for great wheat. So they would leave the cut produce or the cut harvest, not produce, harvest, in the field. And then when the rainy season was approaching, they would pull in everything from the field because drying season is over, the summer is over, it's time to bring in the stuff in the fall. Everything has to come in. That's why Sukkot, which is a fall time festival, is called the festival of, and we'll look at it inside in the actual verse. It's the festival when you gather in the produce of the land. So you cut it months ago, right? Months, a few months ago, you cut you cut the produce. You cut the the. Um, The stalks, the grains, whatever. You cut it. But now, you gather it in. So that's how um, Sukkot, that's the agricultural significance of the holiday of Sukkot. It's the ingathering of the produce. Let's continue. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day, that's the first day of Sukkot, you should take the fruit of the Hadar tree. We know that as the Esrog. Date palm fronds, we know that as the Lulav. A branch of a braided tree, we know that as hadas or hadasim, and willows of the brook, we know those as aravos or aravot. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for a seven-day period. Samachta you shall rejoice. It's a mitzvah to be happy on Sukkot. It's a mitzvah to be happy all the time, but especially in Sukkot, you have like an extra, an extra boost, an extra dose of rejoicing. And you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord for seven days. In the year. You know, in other every year you have a seven-day holiday called Sukkot. It is an eternal statute throughout your generations that you celebrate it in the seventh month. Seventh month, 15th of the, 15th of the month, for seven days, you celebrate Sukkot. And, let's clarify here. For a seven-day period, you shall live in booths. Seven days. And what are the booths? A sukkah. For seven days, you should dwell, live in a sukkah. Every resident among the Israelites shall live in booths, live in a sukkah. In order, that, and living means you do your activities in the sukkah. You eat, you drink, you entertain, you, you hang out, you schmooze. All of that happens on Sukkot in the sukkah. Why, why are we doing this? Why, why the sukkah? In order that your ensuing generation should know, your kids should know, that I have the children of Israel live in booths. When I took them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. When the Jewish people went out of Egypt, they went into the wilderness, into the desert. And what were the living conditions then? We think they had McMansions over there. We think they had, um, you know, like beautiful homes. No, they lived in simple huts with the cloud, clouds of glory protecting them. And so God says, I want you to recall this experience every year on Sukkot. Sukkot literally comes from the word Sukkot, which is a booth a temporary structure. Build a temporary structure and then put yourself out there, literally out there, in the elements, for seven days, for a week. And that's going to remind you of the vulnerability that you embraced, that your ancestors embraced when they left Egypt. When they left Egypt, they didn't, they didn't. I mean, they did a lot of complaining also. But they weren't like, no, we need luxury accommodations. They went with the flow. Right? And God protected them. And so... For all future generations, we build a sukkah. We put ourselves out there for seven days in order to remind ourselves of the protection of God over us and our dedication to follow God to our first apartment that really wasn't much of an apartment. It was just a little ramshackle situation. And Moses told the children of Israel these laws of the Lord's appointed holy days. uh, Moses transmitted all of these laws to us. All right, Rashi. Let's see if we can get some rashis here. Holy occasion. This expression mentioned in connection with Yom Kippur means that you are to sanctify the day through wearing clean garments and through prayer. That's when it talks about that vis-a-vis Yom Kippur. While this expression mentioned in connection with the other holy days means sanctify it with food and drink. In other words, what does it mean to, um, to keep the day holy? You know, what does that actually mean, that it's a holy occasion? So in Yom Kippur, it means wear clean clothes and pray, which is what we do. On other holidays, the typical holiday, the happy holiday, right? Now, I, don't, I mean, like, happy holidays means something else in America. But, like, on a, on a day that's not Yom Kippur, on another holiday, so how do you um, mark it as a holy occasion? It means food and drink. Don't fast, right? Eat good food, drink good beverages through wearing clean clothes and through their own special prayers. Okay, let's continue. A day of detention. I mentioned this before. God says to Israel, I have detained you to remain with me. I don't let you go. I'm not letting you go. You're with me. This is analogous to a king who invited his sons to feast with him for a certain number of days. And when the time came for them to leave, he said, my sons, please stay with me just one more day, for it is difficult for me to part with you. Similarly, after the seven days of Sukkot, God detains Israel for one extra holy day. Like exactly what I told you. The only difference is, I told you an example of a parent and a child. And here he uses a king and a child, but it's really the same. It's it's just one example of that same phenomenon. And the phenomenon phenomenon is, that here you have someone who's so in love with the other that they say, you know what, I can't, I can't see you go. I gotta, I gotta keep you one more day. And that is Shmini Atzeret, the day of detention. A second here, let's let Oliya in. Okay, on that day, the Torah says you shall not do um, any work of labor, even such work that is considered labor for you that if not done would cause a monetary loss is prohibited. You still can't do it. I need to. I must. The business is riding on it. The deal. No, you can't do it. Um, You shall not perform. One may think that even during the intermediate days of the festival, work work of labor is also prohibited. Scripture therefore says here it is a day of detention, i.e. only on this eighth day is work prohibited and not on the preceding weekdays of the festival when such work, which if postponed would cause a monetary loss, is permitted. So on, on the intermediate days of the holiday, we are allowed to work, but ideally only those types of work, that need to be done now. Like if you could do a job later and it's not gonna cause any harm or any or any problems, then do it, then do it after the holiday. Um, don't do it on Khalamad. But things that are pressing that you have to like you gotta gotta get done right now, then you're allowed to do it in the intermediate days. Not on day one and day eight in the, in the case of scope but in, in the intermediate days you can do it. Okay. Now let's continue with verse 37. Um, burnt offering, meal offerings, the libation offering. Okay, requirement of each day as specified in the book of Numbers, chapter 29. The requirement of each day on its day, but if the day passes, Rashi says, and the prescribed sacrifice for the day had not been offered, the sacrifice is canceled, i.e. can no longer be brought on a, on a later day. You cannot, like, bring it later. It just doesn't work. You can't bring, like, a Paschal lamb like after Passover. It's just not, it's just, a, at that point, it's just a lamb. It's not a Paschal lamb. Anymore. It's just, you, can't, you can't bring a holiday offering after the holiday is over. It just doesn't, doesn't work. Okay, let's continue. Here we go. When you gather in, you do, Sukkot is when you gather in the produce of the land, as I mentioned. This teaches us that the seventh month, seventh month, must occur at the time of the ingathering, namely in the fall. From here we learn that they were commanded to proclaim, to proclaim leap years, i.e. to add an extra 13th month to the lunar year, for if there were no leap years, the lunar years would eventually no longer coincide with the solar years, and sometimes the, the seventh month would occur in the midsummer or midwinter, a midsummer midwinter, not in the time of the gathering. This is basically going back to a point that, that I've talked about many times before, and that is the Jewish calendar actually is a hybrid of lunar and solar because the solar... the The solar annual cycle is 365 and a quarter days. The lunar cycle is 354 days. Like 12 lunar months is 354. Which means that after one year of both cycles, the lunar year ends 11 days shorter. Okay? And so after two years, it's 22 days shorter. After three years, it's 33 days shorter. Which means that if the first, let's just say, the first Sukkot ever... Let's say that Sukkot was September 1st. Let's just say, September 1st was Sukkot. Year one. Year two, it's 11 days earlier. Now it's in August. Year three, it's 11 days earlier than that. Right? You, you're After three years, it's now a month. Instead of September 1st, it's now like end, it's 33 days up, it's now end of July. And you'll suddenly have Sukkot in the middle of the summer or even as it backs up more in the spring or in the middle of the winter. And that's not when Sukkotah is supposed to fall out in the fall, when you're gathering the produce from the field because it's about to rain. So that's why the Jewish calendar has to include the summer seasons, not the summer, the the solar seasons, the seasons that go according to the cycle of the sun, and therefore, we add every two or three years, we add an extra month of Adar, Sheni, second Adar, in order to keep those two calendars somewhat reconciled and keep the holidays in their appointed agricultural seasons. Okay, back inside. All right, take for yourselves on the first day of Sukkot the fruit of the Hadar tree. What is that? Scripture could have said hadar fruit. Since it has the word tree next to fruit, right, the fruit of a hadar tree, it teaches us that this is a tree whose wood has the same taste as its fruit. Listen to that. Oh. That the wood, the actual bark of the esrog tree tastes like an esrog or something like that. Note that according to Ramban, the fruit known in Aramaic as esrog is known in Hebrew as hadar. Okay, either way. The point is that there's something about the bark having the bite. What do they say about a, about a dog? It's, it's bark it is... It's bite. In this case of the estrog, its bite <laughs> is exactly like its bark, or its bark <laughs> is like its bite of the fruit. Something, something, something. We've got we to gotta smooth that out. But there's a lot of potential there. Okay, next. Hadar refers to a fruit that resides on the tree from one year to the next, which is the estrog. Listen to this. I can, I can attest to this. By the way, sad um, crop this year for the Solish peach tree. Why? No peaches. And I don't believe they're coming in. It looks to me like a dud year, like it's not happening. What are you going to do? Sometimes things work out. Sometimes they don't. That's the way of life. But I will tell you this. Even when they do grow, they come in for like a month or whatever, a little bit, you know, a month or two. We pick them, we eat them, the squirrels get them, whatever it is, and then they're done. And by the next season, if it grows again, the next season, it's a new batch of it's a new batch of uh, of, of peaches. The esrug is weird, sorry, the esrug is unusual and unique in that the esro, if it doesn't fall, it, it can grow all year round. Are you with me on this? It can grow all year round and you could have any given year. Fruit that had started to grow last year with fruit that just started to grow this year—it's very much of a kumbaya on that esrog tree. It's, uh, we accept all esrogim and uh, we don't discriminate based on age, size, you know, color or shape. Like all esrogim are welcome, literally on the esrog tree. That's what Rashi says. Hadar refers to. A fruit that resides on the tree from one year to the next, which is esrog. The fruit resides on the tree from one year to the next. It's pretty cool. Kappa is marm um, de pom fronds. Only one de frond frond is to be taken because it's in the singular, not the plural. Branch of a braided tree. Rashi says a tree whose branches are braided like cords and like ropes. And scriptures referring here specifically to the hadas, the myrtle tree which is made in a braided-like form. Okay? We know that because, you know, we, we do it, but this is how we derive it based on the Talmud, tractate Sukkot 32b, Rashi, etc. Okay. Why should we live in Sukkot, in, in huts or booths on, on the holiday called Sukkot? In order that your in certain gener- soon generation should know that I had the children of Israel live in booths when I took them out of the land of Egypt. What does that mean? Rashi says, not literal booths, right, booths, not literal, but these were rather the clouds of glory with which God en- uh, enveloped the Jewish people in the desert, forming a protective shelter for them against wild beasts and enemies. So God protected them with the clouds of glory and to commemorate that protection, so we protect ourselves, we, we surround ourselves with a sukkah, which also serves a little bit as protection and of course, we, uh, we look up to the sky, we look up to God, Not that God is in the sky versus on on the ground, but we look up to remind ourselves of where our protection really comes from. All right, seventh reading, Torah portion of our Before we do this, um, any questions thus far or comments? No? Okay. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 1. This is the final stretch. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel and they shall take to you. To you would be Moses, right? God says to Moses, tell the people that they should take to you. Sounds like that's you, Moses. Pure olive oil, crushed for lighting, to kindle the lamps continuously. We're going to need oil. We're going to need olive oil. So the, the God says, put out the call to the people and let them bring to you pure olive oil. Outside the dividing curtain of the testimony in the tent of meeting Aaron, shall set it up before the Lord. The, before the Lord the, this is the menorah, referring to the menorah. Um, he should set up the menorah from evening to morning continually. This shall be an eternal statue for your generations. We discussed this before. There was one miracle lamp on the menorah. They filled up the, 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 the cups, the oil lamps, the cups with the identical amount of oil. And yet one of them managed to burn essentially 24 hours, until it was time to, to light it again. They used to light it in the afternoon toward evening, like late afternoon. They had a seven, remember, the Temple Menorah was not eight or nine branched, it was seven branched. And they would light it, the, the priest would light it every single day in the afternoon, like late, late afternoon. And by the next day, when he was going to light it, you know, fill it up and light it again, there was one lamp still burning. He would actually put it out and then right before he kindled it again. So it was essentially a, um, a lamp that burned from evening to morning and continually. Like most of them burned through the night from evening to morning, but one burned continuously. This shall be an eternal statue for your generations. By the way, eternal statue for your generations usually means a mitzvah that we can do today. Well, we can't light the Temple Menorah today, but we can light the Hanukkah Menorah today. So we have some Menorah commemoration, e- indeed, eternally for all your generations. Even till today, we are dabbling in Menorah. I'm not saying it's the same thing. It's not. But it's somewhat harkens back to the Menorah experience. Upon the pure Menorah he shall set up the lamps before the Lord continually. And you shall take fine flour and bake it into twelve loaves. Each loaf shall be made from two-tenths of an eifah flour, And you place them in two sacks, two stacks, stack two stacks of six, 12 loaves total, vertical stacks. Uh, you should place them in two stacks, six in each stack, upon the pure table before the Lord. Remember there was a table, and inside the, the holies, the kodesh, were three items. The menorah, which spoke about that, spoke about that. the shulchan, which we're speaking about right now, the showbread table, and the The mezbeah hazov, the golden altar where they burned incense. So we just spoke about the menorah. Now we're speaking about the table. On the table you put six stacks of loaves. And you shall place pure frankincense along each stack. And it shall be a reminder for the bread, a fire offering to the Lord. This is a gift to God. Each and every Shabbat day he shall set it up, the, the loaves of bread on the show table. On the show table, he shall set it up before the Lord to be there continuously. Continuously means all week, same bread all week until it's swapped out the next Shabbat with new loaves from the children of Israel and eternal covenant. Something very special about this bread ritual, twelve loaf of bread ritual. Um, but that's what it was. Uh, that's what was done, and it shall belong to Aaron and his sons. In other words, who who gets to eat it? After the week is done, and when they replace it with new loaves, who's eating it? The Kohanim, the priests. Shabbalah to Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is holy of holies for him. Among the fire offerings of the Lord, an eternal statute, you have to eat it in a holy place, and of course, you have to be in a a state of ritual purity. If the Kohen is not pure, he cannot eat from these loaves of showbread that were in the temple for a week. Now, we're going to stop by verse 10 for a moment. Because that starts a new story, a very interesting story. But first, I want to make sure that we're all on board on the same page with the loaves. There were 12 loaves. They got placed there every Shabbat by the shift of Kohanim that were beginning their shift on Shabbat. Well, as this shift began, another one was ending. And so what they would do is they would divide up between the incoming and the outgoing. They would divide up the old 12 loaves amongst the Kohanim, and the Kohanim would eat it, and the new loaves were out, and everything was fine. In fact, it's interesting, because the Torah mentions so many times, and I'm sure you noticed it, that the showbread should be there on the table continuously, or continually, even though they had to replace it. So how do you replace it? The moment you... Let's be very, very simple here. If you have a table, kitchen table, with a loaf of bread on it, and you remove the loaf of bread and put on another loaf of bread. Well, for a moment in time, there was no bread on the table. So then it's not there continually. So how'd they do it? If they took off the previous bread, they had racks, right? You've, we've seen the picture before. They had racks that had six shelves. So if you take off the loaf and then put in a new one, well, for a, mo- a fragment of time, the, loaf, the, the bread wasn't there. And it's not continually. So what they do, listen to this. They would take, like imagine like a loaf pan, like literally, like imagine like a rectangular loaf pan in a rack, yeah, sitting in a rack. They would take the new one and push the old one off. You with me? They would take the new one and slide it. Like here's the old one, here's the new one. They would slide it so there was never a time where there was no bread. So as the old one moves out, the new one is coming in and then it's there. It's in position. So they would do it. They would literally slide it with the other loaf. Why? To fulfill the idea that it should be there continually. All right, back inside. Let's take a look at some rashis. Okay? Because from verse 10, we get to a story that closes out the Torah portion. But we don't want to get there yet before we do rashis. Um, okay. Let's talk about the oil. Let's talk about the oil. Pure olive oil. Rashi clarifies. Three three grades of oil are extracted from an olive. Just so you know, there are three levels of olive oil. The first drop of oil that the olive issues after crushing it is called zakh, pure. The initial press is called pure oil. And that is used for the menorah. The second and third oils from subsequent pressing... That result from grinding, sorry, you actually. You, those are used for the meal offerings. The meal offerings came along with oil. These grades of oil are enumerated in the Trantheim in the Achot and Torah Kohanim, in the Talmud and the Medrash. Continually, the menorah is lived from one night to the next, even though it was to burn only until the morning. See verse 3, it was a continual Talmud um, uh, burning of the menorah. And that it was to be lit each night. Each and every night it was lit. This is similar to the continual burnt offering, which was only from day to day. Rashi does not quote the miracle that it really did. One of the lamps did burn 24 hours. He says, why is it called continually, even though it goes out in the morning? Because you light it continually every day or every afternoon, and it burns all night. And that's how it is. So even though the light does go out, but it's done every day, so it's continually enough to satisfy the meaning of the verse. Okay. Oh, now Rashi mentions the miracle here in the next Rashi. Okay, the dividing current of the, of the testimony, which was situated in front of the Ark, which was called the testimony Haedus. And Arab has expounded that the Ha'edos, the testimony, alludes to the Western lamp. It's one of the lamps of the menorah, which was a testimony to all the creatures on earth that the Shekhinah, divine presence, rested upon Israel. For the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would place... Into it, the same amount of oil he placed into the other lamps, and he would begin the kindling, and with it he would, and from it he would begin the kindling, and with it he would finish the, the cleaning, since it continued to burn miraculously until the following evening. That was the miracle. the The western lamp, it's called the western lamp. The west, that one lamp, had the same amount of oil as all the other ones, and yet burned way longer. They all went out by the morning. This one went to the to the, till, till it was time. To light the menorah again in that late afternoon, early evening time period, <coughs> he shall set it up from evening to morning. In other words, in such a way that it has enough oil to burn for the entire night. And our sage has estimated how much, how much oil—half a log, for each lamp. This this amount is sufficient even for the long winter nights of the Tevet season. And this measure became fixed for them, i.e. for the nights, even during the shorter summer session, summer nights, they didn't adjust the quantity of oil. They just kept it with whatever you needed for the longest nights. For the winter nights, they, um, they kept that amount. And of course, in the summer, it's a shorter night, but it just burnt a little bit longer. Pure menorah means it was made of pure gold. Another interpretation, another explanation is, he shall set up the lamps upon the purity of the menorah, because before coming he would first clean it up, cleared of ashes from the previous night's burning. So it's the purity of the menorah, it's a clean menorah. That tells us, that alludes to the mitzvah of cleaning out the menorah before you light it again. By the way, this is something that if you light an oil menorah, you know to be true. When you light an oil menorah, I'm saying Chanukkiah, Chanukka menorah. So the cups get oily, and the wicks get, um, it's like you get charred pieces of wick that are floating around. And it becomes, I don't know, it's just dirty. And it's not, it doesn't have that new menorah look, that, that new car smell. It doesn't have that new menorah luster and shine and appeal. So what do you do? You clean it out. It was one of the priest's jobs, one of the Kohen's jobs. Every day was to clean out the menorah and then rekindle it. So the cleaning out was a whole thing. And this is alluded to in the verse that talks about a pure menorah. Make sure it looks pure. Make sure it looks nice and clean and sparkly before... You light it that next evening. Now we're talking about the showbread, place them in two stacks. Rashi, six loaves in one stack. Upon the pure table. Uh, the table pure gold. Another explanation, upon the top surface of the table, the loaves of bread were thin and fragile. Therefore, in order to prevent them from cracking, when stacked upon each other, sep- and this I mentioned before, separating racks supported each loaf, except for the very bottom loaf in each stack which must directly, re- which must rest directly upon the surface of the table without any rack intervening between the loaf and the table surface, so that the rack should not intervene and raise the bottom loaf of bread in each stack from direct contact with the surface of the table. I feel like it says it three times there, but it's fairly simple. What they did was the breads were very delicate. You could not stack the breads on top of each other directly. They would crush. They would break each other. You set- six loaves creates a lot of weight and that would just Mess up the breads. So they had a rack system. Look at Baker's Rack situation. They had a rack. And with compartments. One, and and they were side by side, right? Because two stacks. One, two, three, four, five, six. It was great. The bottom one, the bottom loaf, rested on the table itself. So the rack scaffolding started from above that first loaf. So the first, the bottom loaf, So first loaf, the bottom loaf, two loaves. Had to touch the table, and from there they had the raksus. All right, back inside. Is that the dessert you were talking about at the beginning, the, the stacks of chocolate? What did I mention about the chocolate? Sorry. No, you, you had mentioned a dessert that was on Habad.org. I don't know. If that oh was yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no, no, no. That was just for the sukkah. Okay. No, 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 no. No, that was just for a hut, which was, I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I didn't look up, I didn't click on that webpage, but from the image, it looked a bit basic. Now, basic is good for little kids. I'm just saying that if you want to, like, if you're having, like, guests over the Shabbat and you want to do, like, a nice, elegant dessert afterwards, you know, together with wine, I don't know that you want to, you know, jam jammo together a bunch of chocolate covered wafers and just, like, do a little twirly twirl of green sour sticks on top. I just, I feel like... You're going to go a little bit more high-end on that. Like, a little bit more creative. Um, In, like, Hebrew school, what we would do with the kids, and again, I'm not necessarily saying this is a good thing, just saying this was a thing. Take graham crackers, use a little marshmallow fluff as the cement. Are you with me on marshmallow fluff? You know that white stuff? Very sticky, right? Somewhat of an adhesive. I'm pretty sure Elmer's glue and marshmallow fluff, think about it, made by the same people, Slightly different flavoring, toxic, not toxic, okay? So, that was a joke, by the way. And marshmallow fluff, you would marshmallow fluff the sides of the, th- of, the, of, the, of, the, of the graham crackers, stick them together, make a nice, as large sook as you wish, depending on how many graham crackers you wish to expend. And then on top, we would put, you know those, um, like, thin pretzel sticks? Not the big rods, but, like, the thin pretzel sticks? You lay those guys across, that looks like Bamboo. You want to get even more decorative? Then yeah, you got to go to greenery. Find some green situational candy. Find something that's like you know, like sour sticks. Classic winner. My favorite, I always say this, my favorite schach of all time, without question, is the palm tree. Is the palm frond. Amazing. My gosh. Easiest sukkah I ever built was in Miami. Oh, it's fantastic. Cut those palm fronds down or got someone to cut them for you? They're like, not the whole palm branch. Don't give, me a whole, don't give me a tree. I'm not throwing a tree up there. But just the front, just like the green part, the wide green part, before it like goes, before it like frays out, it's still closed up, you throw those bad boys on top, you just like frisbee them, you're done. You're done. I mean, you gotta, obviously you have to have like a support system of like other wood kind of crisscrossing so that these guys don't fall through onto some poor unsuspecting sukkah dwellers head. But once you have that scaffolding, then boom, you're good to go with, uh, with that schach. All right, but I digress. And I also want to point out that good luck finding palm tree, palm frond, palm tree frond-like candy for your candy sukkah. So you may need to go, you may need to bite the bullet and go with um, the sour sticks. Listen, no one ever said it's easy to make uh, parsha desserts, but it's worth it. Someone said at some point... Okay, back inside. Um, You shall place pure frankincense along each stack, Rashi says. Alongside each of the two stacks is frankincense. According to... Fine. There are two bowls of frankincense, each bowl containing a fistful of the frankincense. There you go. A reminder of the bread, because nothing of the bread itself was offered to the Most High on the altar. None of the bread was actually ever put on the altar. I, I told you what happened with the bread, right? It sat there for a week, and then they pushed it off with the new loaves, and then the priest, the Kohanim, ate it. It never went to the altar. As an offering to God, it was eaten by the, it was eaten by the Kohen. So, ha- nothing was for God? No, he says, no, rather the frankincense was burned when they removed it every Shabbos. Now, there's the, frank- there's the loaves, of six, 12 loaves of bread, two stacks, and little bowls of frankincense, the spice. So they, 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 they burn the spice on the altar and that causes, thus the frankincense was a reminder for the bread by which it is remembered above like the fistful of flour and oil which is a reminder for the meal offering. Okay. All right. Now we're up to the story. This is going to close out the Torah portion. Here we go. Verse number 10. Now, the son of an Israelite woman, and he was the son of an Egyptian man. So basically, this was the child of a Jewish woman and Egyptian man. Um, the Egyptian man was the guy. It's complicated. This was the guy who was beating up the Jew that Moses intervened and he killed the Egyptian. That was this guy's dad, according to the sages, right? Let's just verify that, corroborate that with a little Rashi action, right? Um, Yeah. The Egyptian man, the Egyptian whom Moses had slain. This was the guy that Moses killed. What happened? Basically, this Egyptian guy had his eyes on a Jewish woman who was married. And so he... um, He was beating up the husband because he wanted the wife. And then he, at some point, I guess before that, he was with her. And there was a child that was born from this. And this was the child of of that... Union, if you will. I don't, I don't know what you, what you want to call it, but the son of the Israelite woman and the Egyptian man. So now that son went out among the children of Israel and they quarreled in the camp, this son of the Israelite woman and an Israelite man. So he gets into a fight with someone else. Now, why do they get into a fight? Because, because, um, they got into a fight because this guy, tribal identification goes with the father. And this guy's father was an Egyptian. So now what? Now, now what he, who, so which tribe does he belong to so there was a bit of a dispute about which tribe he wanted to go after his mother's tribe but that's not necessarily what you would do in this case it caused a bit of a kerfuffle and this guy ended up verse 11 and the son of the Israelite woman pronounced the divine name and cursed so he pronounced God's name and he uttered a curse now that's one of the Ten Commandments that's like one of the do not do, not do not curse God's name so they brought him to Moses and FYI, the Torah says, so you know the family, his mother's name was Shalomit, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Don. That was his mom, his Jewish mom. The father was Egyptian. His mom was Shlomit, the daughter of Dibri, of the son of Dan, of the tribe of Don. They placed him in the guardhouse, guardhouse, like in a holding cell, until a sense would be specified to them by the word of the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, They said, God, what do we do? What do we do with this guy? Take the blasphemer, right? Because he was blaspheming God's name. He cursed God's name. Take him outside the camp. And all who heard this blasphemy shall lean their hands on his head and the entire community shall stone him. Wow, that's heavy. But it is a capital crime to curse God's name. So that's what happened. And to the children of Israel, you shall speak saying, any man who blasphemes his God shall bear a sin. In other words, he's guilty. And one who blasphemously pronounced the name of the Lord shall be put to death. The entire community shall stone him Convert and resident alike, if you pronounce the divine name, he shall be put to death. Okay? No, uh, no pulling any punches. And if a man strikes down any human being, he shall be put to death. Right? Capital crime for murder. Uh, capital punishment for murder. And one who slays an animal, not, it's not a capital crime, shall pay for it the value of the life for the life he took. So there's a monetary payment and penalty for killing an animal. When we say killing an animal, we don't mean like shackling an animal to eat or to be brought as an offering. But if somebody who you know, kills someone else's animal you just like takes out someone's sheep, that's not cool. That's, that's horrible. you got to pay for it. Any man who inflicts an injury upon his fellow man, just as he did, so shall be done to him. Namely, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he inflicted an injury upon a person, so it shall be inflicted upon him. This makes it sound like if you break someone's arm... And they break yours, and that's obviously not what happens. When I say obviously, that's not the way Jewish law understands it. It's not the way the Talmud understands it. It's not the way the sages ever understood it. Rather, it's not the way the Moses, that's not the way Moses taught us. Rather, what it means is that the value of the injury needs to be covered in financial uh, compensation by the assailant. So, if somebody breaks someone else's arm, someone hits him, breaks us, you've got to pay... You've got to pay the medical bills, the lost wages, uh, pain and suffering, right? A uh, whole five different categories of payment, and that's what the Torah is, is, is alluding to over here. Fracture for fracture means the value of a fracture, or the, va- the amount that it costs to fix that up and to make that person good for the fracture that was caused, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. And one who injures an animal shall pay for it. And one who strikes a person and kills them shall be put to death. One law shall be ex- uh, mur- right, for murder. One law shall be exacted for you, convert and resident alike, for I am the Lord your God. One law, one system, not two systems. That is not just. And Moses told all this to the camp of Israel, so they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him. And the children of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The commentaries wonder why did the Torah out the mother of this guy? They said, who is this guy that cursed God's name and eventually was stoned to death? You know, his mother was Shlomet the daughter of Dibri. And she was the one who was with the Egyptian man and gave birth to this kid who ultimately ended up um, in a uh, in a capital with capital punishment. Why are we outing her name, Shlomo the daughter of Dibri? When why are we calling her out by name when it's uh, it's it's you know it's not not a happy episode? So the commentaries say essentially that. It's coming to tell us the praise of the Jewish people, especially, specifically, the Jewish women in Egypt, that none of them were with an Egyptian man except for this one. And whether it was her fault or not her fault, that's another conversation as to what exactly happened. But this was not the norm. She was the only one that produced a child with it, at least, again, according to our tradition, that produced a child with an Egyptian man during those times of Egyptian slavery. All right, that takes us to the end. I know it's about one o'clock, so let's let's close it out. Uh, I know Arab Shabbos we got a lot of stuff to do, so it ends a bit on a, 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 bit, a, a bit on a negative note with capital punishment being applied to a person who violated the prohibition against cursing God's name, blaspheming God's name. But uh, maybe we'll go back to the notion of the bread and the showbread. You know, it seems a little bit weird, perhaps. There was a table, a golden table in the holies of the temple and, and the Mishkan, a golden table upon which six, uh, um, six loaves of bread were stacked upon each other or on a framework stacked above each other in two columns, 12 loaves total. What are we doing? Why are we, sta- why are we placing bread before God? God's not even eating the bread. The priests eat it at the end of the week. So what's, why are we putting it there on display? It's like you walk into the, that sacred space. You couldn't unless you were going. But if you walked in, what would you see? The candelabra, the altar, and a bakery. Bread. What's going on? The message is, one of the messages is, the, the message that I, I wish to share as we close out today. The message is, our bread can be holy. Our tables can be holy. Our eating can be holy so long as we dedicate it to a higher purpose, to a higher aim. It can be selfish. It can be um, gluttonous. Eating can be completely self-serving. Or it can be a vehicle for transformation. Transforming the energy of the food into our human energy and then into divine energy by doing a mitzvah or whether it's by bringing other people into our homes, connecting ourselves with family and friends and community through food. Nothing, sorry, I can't say nothing. Very few things are as powerful as the experience of eating, experience of food. Torah is reminding us that food can be holy. Food can be temple-worthy if we do it right. So this Shabbos, or today as we enter, get ready for Shabbos, as we cook and clean and challah, get challah, may challah, whatever it is, however you challah, let's remember, let's remember that the food on our tables can be holy, can be sacred, if we so choose it to be. All right, thank you for joining me today for DBP. Thanks for joining this week for Daily Power Parsha. I hope you were inspired and I look forward to seeing you back next week, Monday at noon, DPP. All right. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Olia, good Shabbos. Sarah, good Shabbos. Ray, good Shabbos. We'll see you guys soon. Good Shabbos, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at intownjewishacademy.org. And on YouTube at InTown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.